And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, for the last time. Today we will conclude chapter 12. That means we only have chapter 13 remaining in our study of the letter to the Hebrews. Remember, or if you're joining us for the first time, remember that Hebrews is a letter, it's a pastoral shepherding letter written to a Hebrew congregation that was at risk of returning to the practice of Judaism and departing from their faith in Christ. That is to say, they were missing, longing for the shadows and types, and were considering leaving the real thing in order to go back to the shadows and the types. On that subject, Sinclair Ferguson says, what these Hebrew people, these believing people, are at risk of doing spiritually is like a toddler who's given a Christmas present. And they open it from its wrapping. And they become enamored, and we've seen toddlers do this, with the wrapping and playing with the wrapper at the cost of the real personal gift. That is a great illustration of what they are at risk of doing spiritually. They, the wrapping of Old Testament tradition and practice, which all pointed to Jesus, they're wanting to go back to that at the cost of Jesus himself. And so as you have that in mind, give your attention to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things 
so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray that God would help us understand His Word. Lord, this morning, would you show us the beauty, the wonder, the awe of what we have in Christ Jesus? Lord, either remind us of what we have or show us for the first time what we have in Jesus. We ask this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm not a man of fine art. I'm not a fan of fine art. My wife knows a lot about fine art, a whole lot more than I do. But I did take fine art in eighth grade, like many of you. So those of you maybe who have recently been a student of fine art, you might remember discussion of the use of stark contrast. Stark contrast in visual art. The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, the iconic Renaissance masterpiece, features a strong contrast between light and dark. Or Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night showcases vibrant contrast between the swirling, expressive blue sky and the dark, somber village below. The bright yellow stars further enhancing the contrast. Or Edward Munch's The Scream, using contrasting colors and bold, swirling brushstrokes to create a sense of anguish and turmoil. The bright, intense, orange sky contrasting with the dark, ominous figure in the foreground, intensifying the emotional impact of the artwork. Now, most of you can picture those pieces of art when they're given by name or when they're described, and that is the visual sense of contrast. Art and contrast can even create feeling in the one who visually sees the contrast, right? Well, the same is true in literature. The use of striking contrast, and it too has the ability to create feeling, response, when you read and comprehend stark contrast. So whether it's visual art or even written literature, the use of contrast is a powerful tool. That is what the author is doing here at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. He is using both visual and verbal contrast to help his people feel the truth of what his letter is calling upon them to do. So with that in mind this morning, I have three simple points. They're all contrasts that come from the author's communication in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. See if you can feel his contrast this morning. The first is this. It's the contrast 
of two mountains, Sinai and Zion. Those are the two mountains that he's referencing in verses 18 to 23. The description of Sinai is given to us, and it's what the author is alluding to, from Exodus 19, verses 9 through 20. I won't take the time to read that passage, but it does say this, that Sinai was a place of smoke, a place of darkness, a place of fire, and it was a place of holiness because of God's presence. And we're told that no animal was to go near God's presence. It was not to go near the mountain or it would be what? Put to death. And so Sinai is a picture of gloom. It's a picture, picture of being under the condemnation of law because of our sin. So much so that the people as they saw and heard what came from the mountain. We're told in Exodus, and the author to Hebrews repeats it. He says the people's response was, we don't want to hear this. Don't make us listen to this anymore. It's too much for us. It overwhelms us. And that is all given to us to visually describe, to picture what holiness and the absence of holiness, how they are in stark contrast with one another. The lack of holiness cannot access what is holy. And God visually gave that to us in Mount Sinai. And even Moses trembled with fear. And he was given access to God, but he trembled in fear because he, as mediator, had the same sin problem as the people. So verbally, and what can be pictured in your head, all of that is given by means of contrast to stir in His people an understanding that God is holy, that we are not, we do not waltz comfortably into His presence. We've got to deal with our sin issue. Now, by the way, referring to our worship service, I know I've said this several times, but this is why we have a confession of sin in the beginning of our worship service. We believe this. We believe that we walk in. The six days prior to today, they've been sinful days for you and for me. And we don't just stroll into God's presence without confession of sin. We acknowledge that He is holy, that we are not, and that we have a mediator and the blood of a mediator that atones for our sin. So all that imagery is still present in our worship today. Don't miss it. Then we're given a description of the second mountain in contrast to the first. The first mountain is one of darkness, it's one of gloom, it's one of condemnation. And in stark contrast to that mountain, we're given a description of Mount Zion, what is called the new Jerusalem. It is the mountain of welcoming invitation for those whose faith is in Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, the author has alluded to this where he talks about he's longing for the city whose architect and builder is God, that Abraham was longing for this new city. And this is the new Jerusalem. It's what belongs to God's people. It's a mountain that cannot be shaken, and it belongs to God's people. Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2 reference this. Listen to this description of Mount Zion. 
Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people both now and forevermore. Do you hear the contrast of the two mountains? One is dark. One brings gloom. One brings despair, condemnation, and judgment. Oh, but there's a second mountain. A mountain for God's people that has been secured by Christ Jesus Himself. And it is a mountain of welcome. It is a mountain of grace. It is a mountain of invitation. But the question pressed by the author, what's looming in the, in behind his words, is which mountain are you coming to? Which mountain is yours? If you've come to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, if the riches of Christ are yours, why would you go back to a mountain of gloom and condemnation and despair in the Old Covenant? You see what he's doing? It's the use of contrast. You have left the old mountain. The new mountain is yours. Why are you talking about going back to judgment, to condemnation? He goes on in verses 23, the first part of 23 and the second part of 23, to talk about this Mount Zion and the blessing that it is. He refers to it as the church of the firstborn. You see that in the first part of 23? It is the church of the firstborn. Well, what does that mean? And this is where historical context is always our friend. In this practice, in this era, it was the firstborn, the firstborn son, who received a double portion of inheritance. All the children may receive inheritance, but the firstborn received a double portion. And this again is that beautiful statement of grace. And it can go right by us if we don't understand that context. But the Lord is saying heaven is filled with a people. And what we heard one or two weeks ago, they're all sons and they all get double portions. In Mount Zion, in this better mountain, in contrast with the old, you're all sons, you all get double portions as the firstborn. It's in contrast to the darkness, the gloom, and the despair of Mount Sinai. Then he says in the second part of verse 23, that their names are written there, or they're enrolled there, depending on the version that you're looking at. And that is done by grace. It's not done by merit. So those who receive this Mount Zion are given it by grace. It's not by their own works. It's not by their own doing. And so in every way, in every way, Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai in every way. Why would you ever want to go back somewhere else? So there are two lessons that the author of Hebrews is pressing over and over and over again. And the first is this. You need to come to Jesus. And that's the message of all four of the Gospels over and over and over again. Who Jesus is and that you need to come to Him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. This is who Jesus is. Come to Him. Come to Him. Come to Him by faith. And then the author of Hebrews presses the second lesson. Remain in Him. Stay in Him. 
Don't depart from Him. Don't wander from Him. Don't ever go back to where you were, trusting in your own works, which are always sinful. Those are two pastoral applications that this author is making in his whole letter. The second contrast he uses in our passage is the contrast of two mediators. Two mediators. The old mediator of Moses and the new mediator of Jesus. Listen again to verses 24 and 25. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Two things here about this better mediator. He says in verse 24 that the blood of our mediator is a better blood sprinkled by Jesus than the blood that was shed by Abel. Now you remember previous chapter in Hebrews, if you were here, he referenced Cain and Abel. Cain's killing of Abel in the field. Now he's wrapping back. He's reiterating a point about the blood, about the priesthood, and about what that blood did. And to put it in the most succinct little form, think of it like this. Abel's blood in the Old Covenant was, by the, was death. It was the blood of death by a brother, by Cain. But Jesus' blood was shed for brothers. So in the Old Covenant, you have a brother killing a brother. Bloodshed, murder. But in this greater new covenant era that the Lord Jesus brings, you have bloodshed for brothers. And so in every way, it's more beautiful. It's more comprehensive. It is what God is doing. It is a contrast of blood in the old covenant and the new covenant. The one in the old covenant, the bloodshed of Abel, resulted in earthly war and conflict. And in the better covenant, in the new covenant, the blood shed by Jesus results not in earthly war, but in heavenly peace. It's the contrast of two outcomes, one in the old, one in the new. Then in verse 25, here's the pastoral warning. He says, listen, in that old covenant, the people responded with, we don't want to hear anymore. We don't want to hear it. He said, don't be like that. Don't be a people who refuse to listen. Listen to the warning that comes from God and from His Word. Don't refuse to listen. Heed the warning of God. Now, why does that matter? Well, this is how he concludes chapter, what for us is chapter 12. He says, there's a contrast of two possible outcomes. Now, this is very pastorally applied to these um, Hebrew Christians but it's equally applied to every one of us. And he says there are two possible outcomes for you. It's the contrast of two outcomes. And that is, are you going to be shaken? Are you going to crumble? Is what you put your hope and your trust in going to crumble when it's shaken? 
Or is your faith and your trust in something that cannot be shaken? And that is what he says in verses 26 to 28. He says all temporal things, all created things in this life, they can all be shaken. They will all come to ruin. Now, you know this. How many, I wouldn't have to illustrate for you that everything you've bought in the store deteriorates. You can spend a lifetime purchasing a property and that home is going to be in disrepair eventually. You can take the best care of your body as is humanly possible and it is in a state of deterioration. Every one of us. So whether it's ourselves or whether it's our stuff, everything is in a state of decay and ruin. Even society, even kingdoms and nations collapse and fall. Rome wasn't built in a day. And Rome didn't fall in a day. But Rome fell. Nations come, nations go. People come, people go. Stuff is acquired. Sometimes it outlasts us. Sometimes it doesn't. Listen, if you want an illustration from our very successful yard sale last week, um, here it is. Every yard sale, every storage warehouse all around us that you can rent by the month is testimony that we spend our lives buying stuff that oftentimes outlasts us and gets sold at a yard sale for pennies on the dollar of what was paid for it, right? That is a testimony to, the, to temporary things, temporal things. And if you put your hope and your trust in people that deteriorate, in kingdoms that deteriorate, or in stuff that deteriorates, then what hope do you have? You have a temporary hope. And the author to the Hebrews is saying, listen, those things will crumble. When the shaking comes, when judgment comes, it all crumbles. It all crumbles. But you have come by faith to a mountain and to a kingdom and to a king that cannot be shaken. It cannot crumble. It cannot fall because it is the Lord Himself. He says there are unshakable things, eternal things. And those are the things of God, of Christ, of redemption, of what the Lord calls Zion. Isaiah 47 says, the grass withers and the flower falls. And that's the same spirit of what he's saying. All created things deteriorate. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. Everything around us is crumbling it's deteriorating when it's shaken in judgment. But Jesus says there is something you can have that cannot be shaken. It is when He is your King, when you are in His kingdom, and you have all the confidence in the world, all the peace that this world can know, when you have your faith in an unshakable King and an unshakable kingdom. 
Now, that ought to invoke some kind of a response in you. If your faith is in Jesus, that ought to invoke some kind of a response to you. And I want to close with this. So in our reflection this morning, you know, we have a little passage up when we're beginning worship. And uh, it was from Psalm 66. And then our our call to worship was from Psalm 66. But I want you to hear that again, and I want to comment. So Psalm 66 verse 4 says, All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And then there's this word, Selah. Selah. What does that mean? Is that like an amen? Well, not quite. Um, Tremper Longman says this about that word, Selah. He says, The precise meaning of Selah is elusive, but the word appears to call for a pause in singing or the playing of an instrument so that the congregation might reflect on the truth of the message just said or sung. Let me explain that in my own words. What, what that means. So, Selah appears 70 plus times in the Bible. It's 74 times. It appears 74 times. <clears throat> 71 times that's in the Psalter. Three times it appears in the book of Habakkuk. But the word seems to be, it's a little liturgical marker that says, stop right there and think about what was just said. Think about what was just sung. Think about the truth that exists right there that you just said. It's a kind of interlude. It's an interruption that you might stop and chew on it for a minute. That you might meditate on it for just a minute. And so as I was working through this passage this week, and you get to the end of it when it says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When you hear that news, since you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, everything else can be shaken, but not the inheritance you've been promised. The only fitting response to that is to say, whoa, Say la. Sit on that for a minute. Chew on that truth for just a minute. Don't let it just wash right by you. Say la. Think about it. Let that truth be a balm of healing to your hurt, to your loneliness, to your fear, to your diagnosis, to whatever may be happening in your life or the lives of others. Selah, think about that. Since you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, think about that. Chew on that cud. Enjoy that for a little while. Because that's the promise that God has given you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Listen to this. See if you can say Selah to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When you hear that, that you are receiving a kingdom that can never perish or spoil or fade, the only fitting response is to say, whoa, sit on that for a minute. Chew on that for a minute. Let that sink in. Don't rush by that truth without letting it be a balm to your soul. Say la. Say la. We need to chew on the truths and the promises that God has given us. We don't woof it down, swallow it whole, but we're to enjoy the meal. We're to enjoy the truth. Let's pray that God would make us thankful worshipers, thoughtful worshipers who have this kind of reverence and awe for what He has done for us. Lord, we give You thanks. We give You praise for Mount Zion that has overcome Mount Sinai. That the darkness and gloom of judgment for us has been passed over. And a new city with new promise purchased by new blood for us is what You said belongs to us. So, Lord, show us what we have in Jesus. Help us to believe it. Help us to be defined by it. Help us to be redefined by it with all of our hopes, putting all of our fears to death, that we would believe that what you have said is true. Say la. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.